Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. On this episode of the Raw Ag Podcast, I'm speaking to Gary and Leanne Hall from the Macquarie Marshes in Central West New South Wales. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, Leanne and Gary. Yeah, how are you, Tom? We're glad to be here. Well, I sort of, uh, I've always, I've been wanting to have a chat to you for a while because, um, you know, your your farming practices are quite different to most of Australia's. You've got, uh, you know, um, environmental responsibilities, which um, we like to sort of highlight a bit on Raw Ag too, and you do some fascinating things up there. Yeah, in the introduction that we've listened to a dozen times as we listen to each podcast, it's uh, sustainability, and, and so that's our deal because we run our, our beef grazing enterprise in a pretty uh, pretty environmentally sensitive location. Yeah, so just tell us about where you are and... Um you know how how you have to fit yourself into the environment because we as farmers we all have to fit ourselves into environment um you know and often that's missed that we are just um basically harvesting a um a product from the environment and we have to take it into consideration all the time don't we yeah yeah turning turning grass herbage and medics into into beef that ultimately is going to end up on somebody's dinner plate um we, yeah, central west New South Wales, um, at the lower end of the Macquarie River, the Macquarie catchment extends right into towards Bathurst, Bathurst and Orange. Um, so a family have owned the property since 1934. My great-grandfather bought it. And uh, both Leanne family and my family have been in the local district for many generations prior to that. So um, we've got a bit of an idea of, of the climatic conditions that, that, that this area is, is challenged with. Tom, we sort of 400 millimetre rainfall, no, no, no dominance of, of summer or winter, sort of turn up whenever. Um, and, it, and it's uh, pretty much most of the country is, is much more suited to, to sheep. Um, historically, it's been merino. Reno wool production, um, but but this place, the mile where where Lee and I run our business, it it, it has a reasonable large area of, of Macquarie marshes, um, and that's our cattle enterprise that we graze on on there, and that's that's uh, yeah, pretty much our bread and butter. If the marshes are healthy, our our business is going along okay, and if the marshes are, are struggling, our our business is too, um, and we we sort of. Uh, yeah, the the challenges um, with with running an enterprise that's so reliant on on water that's um, captured in uh, major upstream water storages as uh, uh, Burrendong Dam or Burrendong and Windermere, two major water storages in the upper catchment of the river, we're at the mercy of um, of both government policy and uh, and public perception. So we. Uh, 
we take our environmental res- responsibilities quite seriously. We 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 adjoin the Macquarie Marsh Nature Reserve, considerable distance up, greater than fifteen kilometres, and um, uh, so we're we're sort of got to look over the boundary fence like a lot of neighbours do. Of course, look over the boundary fence and see see what um, no management or or um, a different management um, what results you get on the ground. Yeah. So. Um you know, it's fair to say a lot of farmers rely on the ra- their um, wa- water they require for plant growth to come from the from the sky, and and you do have situations where your water comes from the river and floods. Pretty much most of the time, um, uh, the way the marsh has changed pre pre um, river regulation um, was the marshes were unlike a floodplain. A floodplain is is wet like for a week 10 12 15 days and then water off where marshes the marsh idea of wetland is that it's wet majority of the time with occasional dry period and as a result of of um like human intervention the the uh the system and not just ours is a lot of systems across the world that have been been um harnessed and managed for for other purposes so we uh yep we totally dependent on on a balance of of rainfall and um uh flood water arriving on a property or or, or spreading out of the place but it's sort of the 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 plant communities that grow in the wetland they don't respond from rain so um if you in a in a wet regime it, it the, the rain doesn't sort of help it, it definitely helps when it's falling on on a wet 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 system uh, it makes the water go further but um, rain alone won't won't get our, our native grasses um, water keach and, and common reed that the, the key drivers for our for our beef enterprise it, it won't get them going you mentioned human intervention that's um, all the dams upstream and using the water for other um, horticultural and agricultural purposes um, and now obviously um, through gov- changes in government policy where the taxpayer are letting you letting environmental flows come down the Macquarie to the Macquarie marshes that's what you so there's a lot of politics involved isn't there yeah pretty pretty high stakes um <laughs> It wouldn't be a day go past that we're not somehow involved in that. Um, one of your previous interviewees, Lynn Sykes, chaired an environmental water advisory group um, that I, I've personally sat on. My, my father was involved in it prior, prior to that. So, um, yeah, we're, our community's quite engaged. We've got a, a local landholder association that's got 20 or 30 people in and around the marshes that are, that are all like us, um, uh, trying to get our voice heard and, and it, the general public have got no idea that water that's been purchased for environmental benefit is 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 providing a, a, a business outcome for us so that that's a challenge that we face part, part of our part of our commitment to that is we, we've identified a portion of our property that's Ramsar listed um, and so we uh, we promote the the wise use principles of grazing that that portion that wetland, and um, uh, yeah, for me it's it's a challenging role as a land manager, like all farmers are, to uh, to grow to inform the wider public that that the farming grazing isn't 
all negative to the environment. There's there's plenty of cases, plenty of people doing a lot of good work and, and achieving greater environmental outcomes than than uh, no, no management at all. Ramsar listed, can you explain that a little bit more? It's a global listed environmental system for wetlands, isn't it? So um, you must have some heavy requirements that you must maintain in your management to fulfil what they want. You'd be a good custodian of that, Gary, because you, um, and I, so, I suppose this is a bit of an opportunity that, you know, Gary would know uh, all the species of all the birds, and Leanne, both of them are really, really conscious of the environment. So you'd be, a, you, you would be able to monitor things like that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, there's, you're right, Tom. There's pretty serious commitment to come with being a private Ramsar manager. Um, the idea of having, international recognition under the Ramsar Agreement is to try and lobby government to do a better job. Wetlands as a as a um, uh, plant community are, are under threat all around the world. So, some places they'll never be returned to the health. Wetlands do provide a, a, a service to to the like ecosystem because they're, they're a massive filter and the We've been challenged with water quality issues here, but also most areas overseas. And um, the, the Ramsar Agreement is is a recognition that the role that healthy wetlands play in in the wider ecosystem. So yeah, we it's it's sort of not we this citizen science stuff of of observing what our observations aren't aren't really that. Critical. We because we live here, we do see a lot of stuff that the scientists that come here and do the do the monitoring and studying. They don't see on their like journey out from Dubbo yeah. two and a half hour trip. But we, we sort of um, we open our, our our doors, our gates to all the researchers and scientists that come here and and work very closely with with all government agencies. Uh, to, to promote what we do and, and learn more as we go, Tom. Because classic case of you think you know a bit, but the more you, more you know, the less you know. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I know that my father had a special connection with you because he also had that deeper. Uh, connection with the landscape that um that you have and you often you know i know that you and he shared um those um thoughts together and and so having someone like you in, in on the marsh that where dad used to you know he used to love catching up with you and talking about what what was there and what wasn't yeah yeah no well i hit it off with andrew and and um there's no doubt that like the connection with the landscape, I think. I think what your dad had, Tom, was pretty unique. That that he he was he was able to um, engage wherever he went all around Australia um, with connect with people that had the same same interests with their connection to to a healthy landscape and and just the plants and animals and um, birds, of course. But uh, yeah, no, we a lot of fond memories. Of, of Andrew and Mary's visit, um, we're yet to have you and Lucy here, Tom. So you better 
you better come and have a look one day. Yeah, that's right. I'd love to. And uh, amphibians too. Uh, Leanne said that you've got a, a massive frog chorus going on there at the moment. She actually wanted to have the podcast outside with them in the background. Um, so hopefully we might get a little bit of a recording that uh, to put on the podcast. But, um, you know, the, it must be an amazing environment to live in. It's, it's good when it's good and spring's always the best time like after we, we sort of start to get things going plant, plants get going from the from the frost and everything that grows in the floodplain is, is um frost sensitive so things are quite um restricted during winter but uh come into the spring you get you get the frogs all birds turn up and and also all that Good green water cooch um, and and the reed, all the plant communities that provide the sustainability for our cattle business. And and just on just on the frog the frogs calling. So um, it, it's it's a, it's a special time when the water first hits the landscape and um, it, it and it's been dry for a good ten months and um, the water filters down the Macquarie and. Um, our bedroom faces the an east aspect, so we'll start to hear the frogs many kilometres away. So every night the water's a little bit closer, and the frogs are a little bit louder, a little bit closer, until there the water is only a um, hundred comes a hundred metres to our front door, and by the time the water um, is at our house, the frogs are virtually deafening so that recording i did last night it's just a just a little snippet of um what it sounds like here every night um just outside our window that's that's uh, yeah fantastic and so you know as far as um bird life what sort of um numbers of bird species do you think you have oh it's variable tom um birds are funny little like i say they fly around, not like cows. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean all of them. <laughs> I mean an, an, an annual bird count. You know, do you um, do you have any idea? Oh yeah, it, but it is variable. Um, the, the marshes are, I suppose, are a role. A role of marshes play in the in the um, bird kingdom is that they're, they're recognised as one of the most important colonial nesting bird breeding sites in. In Eastern Australia. So what that means is, like birds like egrets, ibis, um, herons, and um, magpie geese turn up in their hundreds of thousands to nest when when things are right. And um, that they there'll be the the serious populations of smaller birds that are in amongst those those colonial nesting birds, but pretty much. Um, it's all about for us that are that are living here and observing the changes. Um, it's all about the, the big colonies, and, and we haven't had one for quite a while. We're just sort of still on on the recovery from the three year drought from seventeen to, to March twenty twenty, and um, yeah, we're pretty fearful that we may not we might not be able to pull off these large scale bird breeding events. So uh, we're we're waiting and watching, and, and that's sort of one of our key drivers of of interest in in the marshes is is being able to do it right do a do a job that that provides a environmental service um because like ibis for example while they've got a bad name in cities have been chickens and 
people don't like them much, but when you get a grasshopper plague, um, a straw necked ibis that the marshes are renowned for, they can they can clean up thousands of hectares of, of plague locusts, and they, they pretty play a pretty critical role in in the uh, food web. So uh, if we're as a society, we're prepared to um, influence the balance of the food web. Uh, I reckon we're in for a pretty challenging time, and because we're beef cattle producers, we're we're sort of real aware of this time and 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 working closely with all government agencies about. Yeah. So how do you um, fit the two together? You know, um, environment and running a business. Uh, I'm sure that there'd be some um, people that perhaps don't completely understand fully what you uh, what your responsibility would be. Well, would would could argue that well why are you there at all you know um um so what how do you fit the whole thing together so you um have an environmental responsibility you keep planning it and you keep helping the the environment but you also run a functional you know profitable business yeah it costs it costs a lot of money to look after the environment properly tom and and uh i don't think the model that um uh, state government here for New South Wales government, but on a more broader scale, um, Australian government has got for managing national parks is it. Is, I don't think it's sustainable. The idea of um, of pristine wilderness of, of set and forget, lock lock it up and don't and don't manage it. it it's failing. Um, you have where you are in Victoria, Tom, um, where you grew up, like fire has decimated a lot of landscape because of poor management. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually think uh, our business is is providing a, a better service than uh, and the government is achieving by locking country up. Uh, I think that's a that's a it's a tough conversation to have, especially with the park managers, the people that are tasked with with uh, looking after those national parks and nature reserves, but we've got we've got so much evidence to to prove our argument that we're responsible land use, wise use of the landscape, and and monitoring can achieve a, a lot stronger environmental outcomes. Now that's a hard sell in the wider public because people just they they let's say Sydney Melbourne they see the national parks as as um, Lock up the land and, and keep people out and and not not integrate with the environment. But for me, until the Australian taxpayers are prepared to heavily invest in responsible manage of the management of those parks, where we're going to continue this this journey down the slippery slope of of extreme bushfires. Because uh, we'll always get those hot, bad days in January. That, that, but if we have cool burns and we can we can do it a lot differently, uh, which is how we manage our business. I'm not saying we got it right, but but we're we're having a go. Well, we even know um, Gary burning the sides of the roads in Western Victoria. Um, how difficult it is now with um, you know having to have the wind speed you know, below 14 kilometres an hour, having three CFA trucks on site, having all the resources there. There's so many um, legislative requirements now sort of um, that are, that create these thresholds. You can't actually get a day where it all suits, where it all meets, so the, bur- the roads aren't being burnt. And also the responsibility now, the legal responsibility of lighting the match. 
um, is huge. Yeah, people have lost in in the last. It's reasonably recently in the last twenty years, people have lost connection with fire. Fire historically, in, in for 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 humans, has been a been a tool, and uh, now it's seen seen as a threat. Um, so until we until we can start to harness fire and and, and work with it, there's so many benefits by by using it. I, I'd I'd love to be able to light a fire every day. I think it's part of the solution. But um, there's kids growing up. We have kids here that. They'll be they'll be twenty and they've never struck a match. Like for me, for me, we've we've got a very useful tool there to responsibly use and, and learn and, and and teach the younger generation about how the role of fire plays in, in the landscape. Our Aboriginal people use use fire use it very effectively to manage the landscape. So um you run beef cattle and um how do you how do you work them? Do you have them uh they must be Sort of set stock, or tell us a bit about the beef operation. Um, yeah, so the first first question: um, how do we how do we work the yep. work the cattle in in, in our wet environment? Um, yeah, so um, because the the country's um, inundated with water most of the time, um, we we ninety percent of the time we use horses. So we ha- we have to swim our horses over to, over the river to get to to the other half of the paddocks and to bring the cattle back over the river. Um, so yeah, horses are very much part of our part of our lifestyle. Um, when we when the kids first started to started to ride and and we needed them to come out and help us. Um, they weren't so keen on on the riding bit. Um, they'd they'd bail up at the saddle shed and say, "Oh, do we have to come, Mum? Do we have to come? Um, can't I stay at home?" And um, we'd say, "Well, you're going to have to find some other parents because this is just what we do." <laughs> so years years went years went past, and and the kids uh both Teague and Jet are very good riders and and very helpful, and um, so it was music to my my ears when um, years later we sent Teague out on a motorbike just to go around the perimeter of the of the paddock. He he comes back um, a few hours later and he said, "Oh, Mum, I'm not going on the bike next time. I want to go on my horse." So that was music to my ears after all those years of complaining about having to go out on the horse. Yeah, so you have to develop and, uh, your own. You have you, you have developed your own culture, really, haven't you? You know that um, the the Macquarie Marsh is sort of has a has a has a role in your family of sort of changing you to be something different to the rest of Australians, really. Yeah, that's right, and and I think. Um, and as there's more pressure on the water and there's less water coming down the system, so once upon a time, like most of the landholders um, um, along the river would use horses because, like us, they would have to um, go through the water or over the river and, and the only way to do that would be a horse. And and um, so, yeah, over time with the pressure um, of... of um, the water going to other places that some uh, some of the properties are becoming drier and those landholders 
have been able to scoot around on their four wheelers or their side by sides and and um, the horses sort of gone by the wayside a bit. Um, and when the when it comes in, when the good seasons come in again and 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 um, they can't get their four wheelers in there, it um, yeah, it's yeah, it's become quite hard for them because they've yeah got out of that riding culture, but um uh some of those landholders have turned to helicopters now so that's that's sort of the mm-hmm. the next step when you don't have horses um um is to yeah get the helicopter to, to scoot around that scoot around the marsh country to to get the stock out in the better times and, and tom you mentioned on um uh, grazing systems uh yes we do follow uh, rotational grazing principles um, with, with a beef breeding operation as you know for well it's, it's challenging when you when you're carving uh, you're moving yeah. your livestock re- regularly um, we we do we do ca- have carving paddocks we carve carve on the on the dry frosted creech grass um, so yeah coming in in the joining uh, we'll brand and, and, and mob our cattle up and move them around the Moving around the dry country, there's some real talent challenges with high high density stocking rates on uh, with, on in the wetland. Um, so we're yeah watching and learning, and and uh, there's not a lot of there's not not a lot of documented evidence out there of, uh, uh, of um, great fantastic results from from high density stocking in wetland. General principles are when it's wet, you don't have any stock in there. But because that's a large part of our places uh, underwater, a fair bit of time, we got to we got to sort of find other options. And I, I actually think um, a responsible time control time control grazing uh, is a is a solution for us. And uh, and we, we monitor it just like you guys monitor the ice cream plants, the key the key target species that the that the cattle want to get hold of. And and if if we're at any stage we see that they're on top of it, we'll we'll make make the move we've also got because we've got so much boundary with the nature reserve and a lot of it's in pretty tough country to fence like along the river and through lignum and watercourses uh we've got a huge problem here with um with eastern grey kangaroo Ka- kangaroo populations are doing a lot more damage to to our environment than the than the uh than the gra- grazing from beef cattle but but we're, we we play a role in that but <laughs> like they're the national end and the old kangaroo. It's a hard ask to get everybody to understand the challenge that they're playing to the landscape. Yeah, so um, the um, kangaroo is, yeah, obviously, you know, we've opened up huge amounts of area for them um, and put water in where they couldn't get it. And now they're more abundant than they were. So tell me, you know, you bun- abundance and sometimes when when things are going well it's really good and you've got a certain number of stock on obviously when uh, the water's not flowing and the rain's not falling um and um you know the feed supply crashes and you go into drought um you would be in a situation where those those peaks and troughs are probably pretty savage for you aren't wouldn't they be and tell us a little bit about how you might have got through um you know the last five years yeah, we spent even in the good years, we spent 
much of her time worrying and planning for the next route. But part of our landscape, and and I, I'm noticing any of the any of the landholders here locally that've been through what we've been through are all all starting to get their fodder reserves replenished and investing heavily in better infrastructure. Unlike unlike a lot of southern Australia, we're, we're in a bit of a spot here. Like the drought, the droughts, you might get I guess, three, five years without one, but then when we get one, it's pretty solid. So historically, destocking, completely destocking has been, a, been part of the answer. But... Um, yeah, with with breeding and investing heavily in genetics like we have, uh, we, we're not. We, we sort of want to look at other options, and, and we have. We've been a while adjustment. We've fed uh, cottonseed is a is a local local feed supply for us, and and all all the people around the marshes um, pretty used to feeding out cottonseed. Um, but yeah, I I'd like to think that getting that balance of of um, um, like animals uh, to the land and un- understanding the seasons, we can we can. I'd like to think we're get, getting better at it, Tom. To, to start seeing the dry times coming and making managing our herd tighter, like early weanings, a big big part of our operation now. Pulling um, the tighter joinings, pulling the calves off like that hundred days and. Getting them into drought lots—that's that's all part of it. We've we've learned a lot. The the drought that, that we we experienced, or fair bit of eastern Australia experienced in in seventeen to March twenty twenty was like a one in a hundred year drought. So anybody that survived that wants to keep going and have have, a, have another crack. I reckon from now on we're we're all going to be a fair bit smarter. So tell us some of the things you had to do to survive it, um, Garen Leanne, because you um, I do know a little bit about. You've, I've heard you present it, um, but I'd like other people to hear about it because, uh, you know, I think that it's almost it's a human resilience story as well as, um, you know, the, some of the amazing things you did. Yeah, um, with the environmental flows, when environmental uh, Dam was full in 2016, so uh, we knew we were pretty confident we were going to get a get a enough country wet in in the spring of, of 17 to keep our numbers going we, we're coming coming into the dread years and low low number base we'd had a few tough years in 13 14 and 15 so our, we were actually still breeding our numbers up trying to get our numbers up to our optimum level and then when um we got through got through 17 early wean bang ready to go we, we thought we were pretty much made it through a real Bad drought, and then, and then eighteen presented same deal. There was still there was still a, a reasonably small environmental release held in the in in the environment's account, so we knew we were going to get some water going. So we fed, fed, fed early when did the same again, and then we then we went into into the summer of nineteen, and there was there was no water left to like we down to pretty much down to critical human need. Towns were starting to run out of water. And, um, the way the, the system is budgeted, there was no there was no water for, for the environment. So um, we had to make some pretty hard decisions. Um, we, we joined and got a reasonable number of cows and calf. And so in May June 2009, we, we were we planned to start selling um, pregnant females 100 a week, and um, and then finally we were able to pick up 
a paddock out, out in far western New South Wales. And that, that's a journey you're talking about, Tom. It was, was quite an experience, but as I've said before, the, the investment we've made in our genetics, uh, it was worth the fight. We, we, we didn't get... We didn't get out of it un- unscathed. We probably took five five years off our life, and, and definitely challenged some relationship issues. But we um, we made it with some cows, and, and we've just we've just put some steers into the, into the feedlot this last week that we wouldn't have had um, wouldn't have had if it wasn't for that for that old journey. Um, I, I, I don't, would we do the same again? Uh, of course not. We do it very, very different. But you sort of got to make decisions as you go. The thing is, with the drought, you, you sort of never know when he's going to end. And and because it's part of our landscape, I, I reckon we're we're pretty practiced at the preparation. Tight management plays a pretty critical role for us. But that one, that one was a yeah, real scare. It tested a lot of Australians, didn't it? It was hard work. Um, so yeah. are you ever tempted to, you know? Is it the sort of country that um, you could trade animals on and off? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because people often ask us that. And, and with the droughts that we've, we've, we've experienced, sort of sent pretty much since, uh, like, oh, since 2000, really, um, there's a real temptation, and some, some of our neighbours do. Um, the, the trouble with the the plant communities where we graze in the marshes, that some of them are extremely high in protein, but but not for that extended period. Um, so they really suit breeding. Yeah. Uh, you get a lactating female and, and she'll um, she'll keep making milk and, and uh, her production curve will, will, will be for an extended duration when very often the protein the protein that she's receiving isn't that high. So um Yep, opportune trading, and we're doing it now while our numbers are low. Definitely opportune trading, but um, are we tempted? Of course we are. Um, do we ever look? Do we ever look where it'd be an easier place to make a living? Of course we do, but we actually like it here. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> no, and that's a good point. And people, and um, you know, particularly when you get you see stats on conversion numbers of comparing fish and pigs and chickens to beef you know and the fish converts um food from one one and a half to two kilos to one kilo of fish and a and a beef animal's about you know between five and seven kilos and chickens and pigs are halfway in between but you know really when you break it down the the value of the feed that the fish is getting is you know to feed a fish well you have to actually feed them fish and um to feed cattle well um, you know they can they can eat their rumen's amazing at being able to ingest products that were otherwise not fit for human consumption or you know any any other animal so so and the Macquarie marshes is that a little like that from time to time it's not so you can't go and put um, trading cattle on there and expect to get massive weight gains at some points of time of the year yeah that, that's a perfect summary of it Tom it, it, it it works well with breeding cattle. There are people that are trading, but um, ma- mainly the cattle traders in our district are uh, out on a dry country. When you get when you get yeah. good winter rain and you get all the clover from Mexico, that's where the kilos are. Yeah, yeah. You've got your nearest town, a hundred kilometres away. How do you how do you um, live in that sort of environment compared to me? You know, I had to slip down to Warrnambool to the into the studio today to do this podcast. It takes um, thirty five minutes to get into a town of a couple of supermarkets. Well, 
three supermarkets, four supermarkets. Um, how do you how do you manage your life around the, you know that sort of distance? Well, um, as we spoke about before, it's it's about our lifestyle here. So um, we're actually we we are a little bit self sufficient. Um, we have a, a house cow that gets milked every few days. And um, we have the, the veggie patch out the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have the chickens for the eggs. Um, we slaughter our, our own beef. So, um, yeah, we're, yeah we're, we're, and, a, and, a, and a good orchard. So we're pretty self-sufficient. So um, we don't necessarily have to go to town that often. Um, but if there's any anything that um, any emergency, emergency needs we have mail twice a week so we can put an order in at the the grocery shop or the rural agency or um any business in in warren um and and get it put on the mail and um yeah so that sort of you know gets us out of going to town as well yeah, because that's quite a lot different lifestyle to, you know, many people will be listening to this, you know, using the supermarket now as their pantry. Um, your pan- <laughs> your pantry would be chock-a-block, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, don't be frightened, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> go tell you what, go uh, hungry for a while, be, Gary, you reckon? No, you're never hungry. There's always plenty of beef. Um, <laughs> the, the deal is getting getting the girls to live out here, Tom. Like we all know, all of Lake needs is, is a local pub and a, and a box of beer getting through the week. Um, and get a hard day's work. It's the girls, and it's the girls that aren't in our community. And 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 most, what we found most of the most of the girls prepared to live an hour and a half from town, a bit more than hundred k's. Live an hour and a half from town. Uh, ones that have sort of grown up in a similar in a similar community. So um, yeah, we we have a great um, relationship with all our neighbours. Um, it's one thing you learn, and, and our kids have learned. Growing up in a in a, in a semi isolated community, we're not isolated. We we can we can jump in a car and burn town an hour and a half. But uh, it's to get on with everybody. Um, ignore the ignore the often challenging conflict situations. Look past that. Change the conversation and find something that you that you can uh, enjoy enjoy talking to your neighbours about. So uh, I've noticed in my travels around the more isolated communities, more people are. Willing to accept um, all walks of life, like differences. Yeah. So we've got we're getting to the end of the podcast now, and I've I've always asked um, mistakes, um, masterpieces, and mentors, Gary and Leanne. um, What mistakes have you made? Oh my gosh! Okay, well I'm going to start. So mistakes. I'm I'm sure there's there's many, um, and like Gary said talking about the drought, not selling more cattle during the drought. That was a huge mistake. Yeah, as he said, took took many years off our lives. But anyway, onwards and upwards. Um, not taking annual holidays, that's a mistake. <laughs> Gary says my life is a holiday, <laughs> which is a load of rubbish. <laughs> um, masterpieces. Um, I think our masterpiece is um, we'd worked off farm together for many different people on many different farms. So I think that sort of equipped us for running our own business. 
Um, I think Gary and I complement one another's strengths and weaknesses. So I think that's a bit of a masterpiece for us. And me personally, um, with my interest in photography and art, I think it gives me a real appreciation of our unique landscape so that I, I, I really enjoy um, taking my camera out, whether it's on my horse or going for a walk in the early mornings or, or late in the evenings. I think that's that's a bit of a masterpiece for me, just enjoying the landscape. Um, and as far as mentors go, um, my, I, I'd say my mum and dad, um, they've been mentors to me. Dad, because even though I have three brothers, I was never left at home. Um, so I was always included in picking up lambs, marking calves and driving tractors. And um, I'm sure it has influenced who I am today. And my mum, um, although she came from the centre of, of Sydney to regional New South Wales to raise a family, um, she seemed to thrive um, with her can-do attitude and also a very clever lady. She was always um, sewing dresses for me for, for every occasion. Um, so, yeah, very, very clever. So something, yeah, I could never, I could never do what she did. And, um, yeah, so she was definitely a mentor to me. And my third mentor, um, a good friend, Vicky Simons, not only because she encouraged and got me to state-level polo cross, but also... Um, yeah, Vicky again, her can-do attitude and also her compassion and empathy to every little, every living thing. Um, yeah, so she's been a, a great mentor to me. And Gary, have you got any things to add or are you? Yeah, oh, I've got my own list here. Yeah, <laughs> I thought so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, right, mistakes, mistakes. Look, I'll, I'll make them every day, Tom. I'm not trying to make a mistake. and that's... Oh, hang on. Can I just, can yeah. I just, the masterpieces, def definitely our kids, love our kids. Tegan Jet, definitely huge masterpieces. Sorry, Gary. Yeah, um, mistakes are a big part of my life, Tom. I, I'm one of those blokes that only learn when I do something wrong. Mostly I do that first and then I learn not to do it again. You haven't got and that by yourself, plan. though, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. That's yeah. how it works. That's how it works. Um, and I'm not frightened to make them. Like, we, we do some stuff. We're, we're pushing the boundaries with our, with our cattle genetics and... Uh, and it's about having having a go and getting in. Uh, sometimes we make mistakes. That's the way it is. Um, I would have liked to embrace a lot of the farm management tools that we're using now. I would have liked to embrace them earlier, for example, AI. Um, Leanne and I were busy, like with a, running a small business, and, and we put off having kids for 10 years when we were first married. I, I'd do that different if we had another go. I'd reckon I'd, I'd have them earlier. And uh, as, as Leanne said, um, yeah, management day-to-day -day management decisions. I could I can fill the book with them, um, but drought management, and that's something that I want to get better at. So that's that's one of our biggest, my biggest mistakes, and I'll carry the blame because I, I'm, I'm ultimately play the major role in in whether we sell cows or not, and yeah, that's me. Um, masterpiece, yeah, I reckon our two kids to have kids that are that are connected with the landscape. I think that's that's a unique trait that you can pass on to another generation that people understand the the role 
we, we as humans play with interacting with the landscape and our kids have got that. Um, the compatibility, Leanne and I, um, Leanne's always positive. She, No matter what challenge we throw at her, she she's just up there ready, give it a go. Um, and, and giving our kids an opportunity to experience what what we we've had the opportunity with our business and our and our um, the relationship. Um, we we try and masterpiece is for us is trying to surround ourselves with positive people, um, and and that's sometimes difficult <laughs> when things are tough, Tom. You you yeah. sort of never know yeah. when you when you're going to be able to find that person you need to. To lift you up, so that's a that's a, a masterpiece that definitely Leanne's been able to focus on um, is to find those people when you really need them to give you give you that lift. Um, and then mentors, uh, yeah, I've got a few. Um, like Leanne, my parents played a big role. Uh, sort of one of those um, unique people that sort of grew, uh, live in the house that I grew up in. So. Got a lot of memories of, of growing up here and, and yeah, pulling your boots on in the dark in the morning. Um, yeah, I've got one of the ones, one of a mentor for me is is uh, Lenny Sykes. Um, I was involved in an environmental water advisory group that Lynn chaired and and she uh, she's taught me so much and and on the phone when when I, I need advice or or not so much advice, I need an ear bashing of what I've done wrong. Um, it probably links into mistakes. Uh, how how uh, how to um, what not to do. Uh, I've just Lynn, Lynn's been a great mentor to me. Um, how her experience with with people and that's something as farmers we've got a real real gap in in our like group of knowledge base is how to get the best out of people. How not to be reactive and and how uh, Lynn, Lynn's always there to help me through that. Um, another another elderly farmer in, in our wider community, Peter Weston. He was he's um, he passed away now, but he was always there on the end of the phone when you needed some advice about about land management, day to day challenges. Um, he was on the local CMA board, and he's one of those people that that uh, without knowing it, he, he's sort of giving you guidance, and I, I, that's how I interpret what a mentor is. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Raw Ag podcast. It's been great hearing your connection with the land and your love for what you do is quite inspiring. So thank you very much for coming along and chatting. Good on you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for the opportunity. It was an honour to be asked. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.